Welcome to Raising Consciousness with me, Lou Burrows, where raising human consciousness happens. On this show, I'm joined by guests to cover a range of topics and have conversations that will raise human consciousness for current and future generations. Now, let's dive into today's show. Hey everyone, Luke here. Before we start today's podcast episode, I just wanted to let you know that the podcast will be changing in uh, four to six weeks' time. Raising Consciousness is going to become a weekly uh, talk show live streamed over on YouTube and Twitch. Here on the podcast, we're going to be uh, rebranding to the LFO podcast, which will become the home of everything LFO, uh, my new exciting project. More details will follow soon, but I just wanted to let you know that the podcast will be changing. Now, let's uh, dive into today's episode. Hi, everyone. Lou Burrows here, and welcome to this episode of Raising Consciousness. Now, before we dive into today's episode, I do want to kind of give a little bit of a disclaimer and apology to my guest today and his team, and also to you guys, the audience as well, because something has happened uh, to today's episode that has meant that today's episode isn't the usual episode, ultimately that you would expect here on Raising Consciousness, where I interview and have conversations with amazing, inspirational leaders, experts, like my guest today, Dr. John Demartini. And to cut a long story short, basically my audio and video files have been corrupted, (laughs) but I have John's. And so with that in mind, and with all the value that John shared during our conversation when we recorded this episode a few weeks back i still wanted to put it out there but obviously needed to become creative on what i would do in order to make the episode make sense ultimately and so basically i'm going to be walking you through the episode and the conversation i had with john um and compiling um some of some of the segments i'm going to record right here right now to ultimately create an episode so yeah before we dive into it i just wanted to make you aware that this episode is different and still hope that you enjoy it because there is incredible value here and i really wanted to share this episode and um bring this episode into the world ultimately so without further ado Let's dive into today's episode with Dr. John Demartini. Okay, so we started off uh, by talking about how John lives and travels the world in his boat. Now, I find this so fascinating, and we touched upon it in the previous episode, right? Um, where John again was was on his boat, and um, he was traveling the world and there was no different in this episode this is how john lives his life and so i wanted to dive into um i wanted to dive into this with john um to kick this episode off so that's what we've done and i hope you enjoy it well when i was 18 years old i asked my mother because i was fascinated by the term genius and i said mom give me an example of somebody who represents a genius And she said, well, people like Albert Einstein and Leonardo da Vinci. And I said, well, let me get me some books on that. I want to read up on this this character, Einstein. And when I read the book, he mentioned that he's not a man of his family. He's not a man of his community. He's not a man of his city, not a man of his state or nation. He's a citizen of the world. And when I read that, I, I got fascinated by that. I thought, what exactly is a citizen of the world? And I looked it up. And it referenced Epictetus, and it referenced Socrates, and many great thinkers who saw themselves as global individuals, not local individuals. And I thought that was cool, and I envisioned myself doing that. And I've since then, I've put together a kind of a statement that I've put into my head, that the universe is my playground, the world is my home, every country is a room in the house. And every city is a platform I get to share my heart and soul. So I've been blessed to travel to 189 countries speaking and sail to more than that. And I pretty well live under the stars and go to country to country and Earth is home. And the name of my ship is called The World. So I live as a citizen of the world. 
and I, I'm a firm believer that if you design your life uh, instead of just live by duty and take command of life, um, you can design the life that you would dream about. There's no reason why you can't live the life that you're inspired to live. I've been blessed to do that, and so I try to do my best to help other people do the same. So as I mentioned beforehand, I find it fascinating. I find it fascinating that John lives on a boat and travels around the world, going from country to country. Um, it's so inspiring. It's so amazing. And maybe that's because, you know, I've had ideas and thoughts of becoming like more of a digital nomad myself, but still um, to be able to do it and actually on a boat, you know, like digital nomad, you go from country to country, you know, traveling, you know, sometimes on foot, whatever, you know, whatever it is, but to actually own a boat, live on a boat and sail the seas, right? I just find so inspiring and amazing. Um, so I had to ask him, I had to ask him where he's going next and his plans for the coming months as we continue to kick off this episode by talking about John and how he lives and has created his life also by design on his boat. And so this is what he had to say, guys. Well, when we finish our little tour of the Seychelles, we were in the Maldives prior, before that in Sri Lanka and India and in the Emirates. But we go from here to Saudi Arabia, and then we'll go back down through the Suez Canal and into uh, Egypt and those regions, you know, past Yemen and, and Ethiopia and Sudan and up into Egypt and eventually um, Israel and over to Turkey, where they just had the earthquake. And we'll be there over the next few weeks. We'll be going that route and then back into the Mediterranean and off uh, from there to Greece and, you know, Italy and France and Spain and Portugal and then up towards up the coast to France and Germany and over to the Ireland and I in uh, England and Scotland and then the Faroe Islands back up to Iceland and over to Greenland and down the Newfoundland area and come down the coast of uh, America then back over into the Gulf of Mexico and off into through the Panama Canal up the coast or down the coast of South America over to Antarctica. So that'll be the route for the next few months. Okay, so next up and the final part of kicking off this episode, talking about John living on his boat. Um, I asked John the logistics of doing so because for me, it's just so different. It's just so unconventional that actually what are the logistics and what is the day-to-day like of living on a boat? I also think because for me, like I've massively become um, health conscious and got into health as well, which is probably where some of this conversation come from. And I'm just wondering like, actually, how does that work in terms of like being out in nature, uh, the environment, etc. Because if you're on your boat for a long period of time, then it's sometimes that challenging and difficult. So uh, this is what John had to say when I asked him this question. Uh, I've got a little window today between my conferences and meetings. Uh, so I will go over to one of the islands and probably spend a couple hours over there, three hours maybe. And then I come back, I'll have something to eat and I'll do my evening presentations. I've got strange hours because it could be any hour in the world, somewhere in the world, my, my hours may be. So, so it, it varies. Some days I'm, I stay on the ship. Some days I go off on, on land. It depends on what is there and what's happening, what my schedule allows. Um, I'm in Australia this weekend doing programs from here. And about a week and a half ago, I was in uh, the U.S., uh, India, Australia, and Japan all in one week, all different time zones. So it, it varies each week. And so I have a strange sleeping schedule sometimes. <laughs> okay, so that does it for talking about John's lifestyle and ultimately how he lives his life. Again, so inspiring, so fascinating. And um, I'm also appreciate and grateful that we got to speak about that and John being so open about that. But we are going to move on and we and we actually did move on to talking about John News book, The Seven Secret Treasures. Enjoy this part of the episode, guys. Well, the seven secret treasures, I was asked by a publishing company if if they would be willing to do a, a multiple book deal. And I, I said, okay. And they, um, they we, we organized sort of a sequence of which ones we did. The first one was called the seven, Your Seven Secret Treasure, the, the Seven Secret Treasures. And that is, when I was also at 18 years old, 
I had a dream to master my life. It sounded cool, master. I don't know if that sounds cool to you, but I just thought being a master sounded cool, 18. And I said, what exactly is a master of life or mastery, having mastery, life mastery? And I broke down life into seven areas. <clears throat> I believe that people have a desire to make a contribution to the world in some sort of business capacity or vocational capacity and be contribute some product, service, or ideas into the world. I believe they have a desire to have some sort of financial freedom or independence. A desire to have a loving and intimate relationship that they can share their love with. Have some sort of social influence and make a difference. Have physical vitality and beauty and attractiveness and energy and well-being. And also be inspired. You know, an inspired state, a spiritual mission in life. So I broke life into seven areas, our spiritual quest, our mind development quest, our vocational quest, financial quest, family quest, social quest, and physical quest. And then I set out to try to learn everything and anything I could get my hands on, on how do I master those areas. I set out as objectives for myself that I wanted to create original ideas that serve human beings across the planet. And I wrote that down when I was 18. And I, you know, I wanted to be an original thinker that contributed novel product, service, or ideas or insights around the world. I wrote that down. I wanted to have a global business and students, because I wanted to teach, students from every country in the earth. I wanted to have financial independence where my money was making me more money than I was working and didn't have to work. I did it because I loved to. I wanted to have a global family. I didn't want to be in a local little house somewhere. I always mentioned myself. When I read that book by Einstein, um, that I want to be a citizen of the world. I want to have social influence and hang out with people that are doing amazing things and that are movers and shakers, which I've been blessed to do. I want to have a vital body. I'm 68, going on 69, and I'm, I keep a pretty intense schedule, and i got more energy than most people. I want to be able to be vital and see if I can make it to 100 at least, maybe 120. And I want to be inspired by a mission which I feel that I've been blessed to do. So I set out on anything that might expand and empower those areas. And I, that has taken me to do quite a bit of study. I've read over 30,000 books, 30,760 books now on every imaginable field, anything to do with mastery of life. And, and uh, it could be brain research, it could be biochemical research, anything that would allow a human being to master their life. And I've been just teaching and sharing and researching and writing. And that's what I do. I research, write, travel, and teach. Everything else has been delegated. So I don't do anything else. I even have somebody that changes my clock timings as I go from place to place as we change time zone. So I have, I have specialists that do everything so I can do what I love doing. Anything that requires motivation for me to do, I've delegated. So there's, I don't need any external motivation. I just love doing what I do, those four things. So I just stick to those. So one interesting point that I picked up on was how John was so clear about his purpose, right? And what he does. And I wondered if it's always been this way. Um, and I guess this question came from, from my side as someone who struggled to find that purpose in life, you know, and to meet someone and actually have a couple of conversations with him now and talk to his team and to, for, for John to be so clear. It's, it's also something that I, I find so inspiring. So here's what he had to say on, on, on this topic when I brought this to his attention. Well, I was a street kid. <clears throat> I left home at 13 and I was a street kid. I lived in a bowling alley. I lived in a park. I lived in the cars. I lived in people's homes. I lived in diners. And then from there, I, I had picked up surfing. So I moved to the beach in Freeport in Galveston area, Texas, which was not the surf capital. And um, so at 14, I said, this isn't where I need to be surfing. I like surfing. And so I hitchhiked out to California and spent part of the summer in California and, and hitchhiked down into Mexico and spent the rest of the summer down in Mexico. And then um, in that fall, I 
went back to California and then I panhandled enough money on the beaches there to get a flight to Honolulu. And I lived in Honolulu. I lived in, well, I lived on the North Shore. <clears throat> I slept under a bridge. I moved into a park, under a park bench, into a bathroom, an abandoned car, and finally into a tent. I kept social climbing. And I became a big wave rider and got in some surf movies and surf books and magazines and got to be in the second tier group, never the top, top tier, never the top 10 people. But I, I was pretty, I did pretty good. And then I nearly died when I was 17. And at 17, I was led to a health food store to try to recover and then to a yoga class. And there was a special guest speaker at a yoga class named Paul C. Bragg. And this one gentleman, when he began to speak, uh, inspired me to believe that maybe I could end up overcoming my learning problems because I had a speech impediment and a learning reading problem. I couldn't read and write and speak properly. And that's why I was a street kid. So he inspired me to believe that I could overcome that. And he's the one that told me that what you uh, think about, what you visualize, what you say to yourself, how you feel about yourself, the actions you take can change the trajectory, the trajectory of your life, the direction of your life. And there's absolutely no reason why you can't do whatever you set your mind to if it's really meaningful to you. And that was the turning point. So at age 17, a week before my 18th birthday, that's the night I made a decision that I wanted to be overcome my learning problems and become intelligent and become a teacher and travel the world. So that was the beginning of it. And uh, I never gave up on that. I almost did when I tried to go back to school and I failed in school because I had problems learning and reading. But I just made a decision that I was going to memorize a dictionary. And I memorized a dictionary, and I started to grow my vocabulary, and I started passing school, and then I became a scholar after that and started reading. And I mean, I've been reading, 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 reading ever since I learned how to read. I learned how to read a book at 18. So as I learned information, um, I started gathering students because I started excelling in the students grew from a local university to a bigger university to eventually a professional school to eventually in the city and then the state and then around the states. And then now I've been blessed to do all these countries. So I never gave up on my dream. That's I just tell people if it's something really meaningful to you, stay with it, build momentum, become unstoppable. Next up, I asked uh, Dr. Demartini uh, the role and the potential importance okay a mentor plays or at least having someone who believes in you if you don't believe in yourself you know i think at some level we all resonate with this in times in our lives where we haven't believed in ourselves and sometimes having that mentor or that person in our lives that does believe in us can give us confidence and can help us to get through a situation or um, navigate a situation in our lives. So this is what John said when I brought this question to his attention. I don't want to say that it's an absolutely essential component because I've certainly seen people that uh, didn't seem to have a really uh, an abrupt mentor that came in and you know really encouraged them. I can't say that's always the case. Some people have other extraordinary things that trigger it. And some people just know at a very young age what they want to do. I, I met a young boy that knew he wanted to be a brain surgeon at age three. And by the time he was 13, he had read every book on brain surgery that was available in the country and had already been into the, into the locations where they do the surgery, into the, you know, the, the places where they actually do it. And, the, and he's already done brain surgery. He's already participated in brain surgery when he was, by the time he was 13. He was working with a brain surgeon and was being mentored by a brain surgeon. So he started at age three and um, he, he was attending a course I was giving in Johannesburg for young adults. And he was quiet, a little bit like a bookworm. And uh, the kids were picking on him and kind of bullying him around a bit. Some of the other kids kind of gave him a hard time because he kind of looked like, a, you know, a, one of those geeks, you know, and then when I started talking to him and I listened to him and his and how clear he was at what he's doing and how knowledgeable he was, 
I asked him to speak in front of the group and completely transform everyone's you know, picture of him and perception of him. And he got a standing ovation after he did his presentation. I told him, I tell him the story of when you decided to be a brain surgeon and how you became a brain surgeon and how you're already doing brain surgery and participating at, at age 13 before you've been to medical school and what you've done in school because of it. And everybody that was picking on him just got silent and they went up and honored him. So, you know, some people know at a young age and they just get on it. I, I know a, a girl at nine wanted to be a fashion designer and a model and by God, she had it. She had her own company by the time she was 11 and 15, she was on the front cover of Vogue magazine. I mean, there's amazing things that some people get clear about at a young age. And I can't say I knew of any one specific, you know, they just got really clear. But a lot of them, probably the majority of them, have somebody that inspired them or somebody that encouraged them or somebody that believed in them along the way. I think that that's certainly a good bonus. But I can't say every one of them. You know, as mentioned beforehand, um, in terms of me, in terms of my struggle, in terms of my struggle with discovering and finding my own unique purpose, I found that last segment with John so fascinating because to have those, to have those individuals in the world that, and so young as well, that actually just know, you know, it, last summer I took a program and a course on intuition and how intuition is a skill. So it's available to us all, it's unique within us, and that we just have to be able to activate it. And actually reflecting on this episode, I think maybe people who just know what they want to do, some point during their life, it could be upbringing, et cetera. Maybe that they've uh, been kind of like uh, consciously or subconsciously like more trained in this skill of intuition. Um, and so they just feel what they feel and just go with it and have the courage also to do so. So I found that really fascinating. Um, and it's great to draw inspiration from those people who just know what they want to do. Um, yeah, you, you know, so I, I really also love that that segment of, of this episode. I did move on to talking then about values um, and the and the role that values play in discovering in discovering our purpose. And ultimately life life has as a whole. We did talk about this when John was on the podcast back last year, I think it was like episode 18, I think, off the top of my head. So definitely go and check that one out. But John reminded us some very, uh, John reminded us of some very key lessons and insights on the topic of our core values, okay? And so I'm happy to be able to share this with you now. Every human being has a set of priorities, a set of values. I might've mentioned this the last time we did the interview. And a set of priorities, things that are most to least important in their life. The moment they set goals or objectives that are aligned and congruent with what they value most, they awaken their executive functions and their forebrain, and they start to uh, walk their talk instead of limp their life. They start to uh, have discipline, reliability, and focus on what's really important in their life, and they build momentum. And they wake up a natural leadership and a confidence and a self-worth that gives them permission to go out and say, hey, this is what I want. I can do it. But when individuals go through life and set goals that are inculcated from people they compare themselves to and put on a pedestal and inject values of other people, they many times are setting goals that aren't really important to them and they require extrinsic motivation to keep them going. If you ever require extrinsic motivation to do what you say is important, what you say is important isn't important. It's not priority. And so some people access what is priority either serendipitously or because they are clear in their knowing and they take off. But the majority of people, majority, um, are comparing themselves to other people, putting other people on pedestals, trying to be somebody they're not instead of giving themselves permission to be the magnificent, unique individual that they actually are. And therefore, they struggle and flounder, uh, and they require external motivation. And when they do that, because of the unfulfillment of doing lower priority things, they awaken their amygdala, which is immediate gratifying. And they're, they're, you know, they tend to be consumers, 
instead of investors, consumers, uh, instead of being moderate, they tend to overeat uh, or drink or party or whatever. They're in a debaucherous pathway instead of a philanthropic pathway. The philanthropic pathway is finding something you'd love to do that contributes to humanity that allows you to flourish and allows you to you know, have wealth and opportunity. And the other individuals about spending money on things that make them extrinsically feel more important than they are because they're feeling unfulfilled. And But the difference is how congruent you are with what's truly important to you, what's really priority to you. That's why I teach people in all my classes how important it is to determine what your real values are so you can start structuring and architect your life in such a way and navigate to fulfill what's really meaningful. I love teaching and researching and writing, and I love traveling the world. Once I found out what my highest priorities are, I just concentrate on that, become great at that, and delegate the rest. And that is a very liberating pathway. And there's, and, and there's no way you will convince me that you can't do that because I've taken thousands of people and shown them how, and they've done it. So it's just a matter of being willing to be yourself in a world that wants you not to be. The world wants you to fit into the group and you have to be willing to be an unborrowed visionary and hold on to your own vision instead of trying to fit into the group. Not that fitting in the group doesn't have a place. Somebody's going to do that. The question is, do you have the courage to be yourself? That's the, that's the real challenge for people. Are they willing to walk a path that's a, that hasn't got a path already there, willing to blaze a new path that's basically meaningful to them. Do you have the courage to be yourself? How powerful is that? I mentioned courage in, in the last, in my last little segment that I um, recorded and yeah, courage, it just seems to be such a big thing that keeps coming up for me. And maybe that's because I need to be more courageous in, right, in my own life. I definitely, that definitely resonates with with me, but um, I just found that so so powerful and a question that we are all to ask ourselves. I think you know, like, do we actually have the true courage uh, and confidence to really be our true selves? Um, so it's a question that I would encourage all of us to ask, all of us to ask and reflect deeply on, and just kind of see what emerges. You know, I'm kind of moving more into this awareness of to ask these these powerful questions in life and just see what emerges rather than needing to like find the answer, see what emerges. So um, we continue on the topic of values with with John, with Dr. Martini as we as he as he uh, dives deeper into some of like the science behind value systems, which is very fascinating. Here is what he had to say. Well, believe it or not, a single celled organism, an amoeba, a paramecium, <clears throat> has a value system. And uh, because it has food it seeks and waste and toxins it's trying to avoid. So it's seeking that which brings, you know, food and sustenance. Anything that allows it to survive, it seeks. Anything that can interfere with survival, it tries to avoid. It has an impulse and an instinct, seeking and avoiding, which is a value system. Good, bad, right, wrong, positive, negative, whatever you want to call it. Now, when multicellular organisms came in, not just collectives like stomatolites that worked in colonies, but actually started to become multicellular organisms like in tissues and organs and things. These cells worked and had a value system as you're developing. Embryologically, you're developing it. You still have this. But the collective of all the cells have some collective direction. And you'll see that as a human being, when they're born, even a baby that's just very, very young, if you put something in its crib, uh, or its bassinet that it doesn't want, it'll it'll scream, bite, uh, kick it out. It doesn't want whatever it is. It doesn't want it. But if you put something that it wants, it'll stick it in its mouth. It'll look at it. It'll hold on to it. Keep it close to it. You take it away. It'll cry. So it already has things that it seeks and avoids, and is a value system. The amygdala in our brain assigns valency or emotional charge on things that we label good or bad or positive or negative or seek or avoid. And so we have that at a very young age. Some people uh, are squashed. You know, when you're zero to one years old, you can almost do anything and your mom and dad are going to love you. You know, you can poo, you can pee, you can bite, you can scream, you can, you know, have diarrhea, you can, and you're just, they just love you. But the second you stand up 
and they got a baby proof uh, thing, you start getting yes, no, 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 stop, yes, no. And in comes the authority's values. And the first authority's values is your mom, then comes your pop, and then comes your preacher, then your teacher, and then your peer groups. And it goes up the social dynamics gradually. And many people get squashed, and their individuality is squashed in that process, fitting in and becoming socialized. And some people are not. Some people keep their identity and they lead the path instead of follow the path. But most people get squashed. Now, if a parent recognizes, I just had a podcast a few hours ago on this very topic uh, from Australia, uh, from Melbourne, Australia, and uh, about if a child is young and you identify what the values are, um, if you squash it, you can take away the inspired pathway that they could be taking. And now they'll be floundering because they're going, I don't know who I am, because what I really would love to do is not allowed. And so there's a fear of rejection and a fear of punishment or whatever if they go and pursue it. So there's once the pain of that becomes greater than the pain of the challenge that it takes to fulfill it, they've squashed it. And then they got to go through their life meandering until they eventually find that back again. And sometimes those values are changing. So sometimes they passed up a real powerful moment in their life that they could build incentive and confidence in themselves. So some people, it depends on how the environment is, how they perceive the environment, mainly their perceptual environment more than the actual environment. Um, they can awaken at a young age. I mean, I've, I've seen, I have a girl that came to my Breakthrough Experience program in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, she was seven and uh, she's way in the back. We had about 300 people at the program and she's way in the back. I didn't really get to see her because she was so small. I saw her dad, but she was attending the class on, on how to break through limitations and achieve what you want in life. And a year later, I was there again at the same location, and the father was there, and she was there again one year later. But this time at the break, she came up running up to me, and she says, Dr. Demartini, um, I'd like to take a moment of your time. And I said, certainly. I mean, she was eight years old now. And she said, last year I came to your program. I made a decision that I was going to be a book author and a speaker like you. And I said, fantastic. She says, I want you to have my first book. And she had a book called Start. And it's about you have to start sometime. Somewhere you get in motion, start. And her first book was published at eight. Her second one was nine. Her third one was at 12. And she became the deputy mayor of Melbourne, Australia, and was doing things to enhance the education of kids. And um, was an inspired girl, just absolutely inspired girl. Did amazing things. But she started at seven, eight years old. So I've seen young people take off and do amazing things. I've seen some people who love sports. They get into gymnastics at a young age and become great, or they take up a sport. I've seen others that do it in academics or art or music. I have a friend who's also was in my program in Los Angeles who uh, we were talking about how many hours they put into making mastery of something. You know, Gladwell said about 10,000 hours. I don't know if that's, that's a bare minimum. But there was a guy there that who was a concert pianist since he was six, a uh, concert violinist, pardon me. And um, he was calculating how many hours of training he'd had since he started at age three. And in three years, he's always doing, already doing concerts at, by six. And um, here he was now 27 or eight or so. He put 43,700 hours into his art. From the age three to 27, 43,000 hours into his art. And that's why he was great. And people say, oh, you're, you're, you're skilled. No, you're, or you're blessed or you're, you know, you have a gift. Well, no, he put the hours in. Most people who think people are gifted really don't see the hours behind the scenes. People come up and say, well, you know, how did you grow your vocabulary? Uh, you're gifted with this vocabulary or whatever. And I said, well, no, I memorized a dictionary. <laughs> I did 30 words a day until a dictionary was in my mind. And I grew vocabulary by reading thousands of books. So that was not something that was a gift. I couldn't even read it one time. So that was a skill that you can develop. And, and if you honor the skill and are willing to put in the hours, you can do amazing things. But if you expect it to be just easy and come to you naturally, 
Me not. Not everybody does. Some people develop that skill very early. My dad, I became a pitcher when I was a young boy uh, before I left home in baseball. But my dad, at age three, uh, we stood six feet apart, and I threw the ball to him. He'd catch it. He'd throw the ball to me, and I would catch it. And if we caught it perfectly for 10 rounds, we, we both stepped back a foot. And then we did 10 rounds of throwing back and forth, 10 cycles. And if we didn't miss it, didn't drop the ball, we went back another foot until we were literally three houses down the side, down the street, throwing the ball back and forth perfectly to each other's gloves. And he trained me, you know, two feet at a time, two feet at a time, farther, 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 until I had the strongest arm, the most clear focused aim, and I could throw a ball into a glove a long way away. And that's because he trained me just over and over and over and over again, back and forth until we did it. We spent quite a few hours just learning how to throw a ball and catch a ball, throw a ball, catch a ball. So by the time I was in, in uh, seven or eight years old, I was way ahead of the other kids. So I was playing in the all-star games when I was nine and 10. I was playing with the 12-year-olds, all-stars, because I was more proficient because I put in more hours, that's all. So this next segment, guys, is especially for you parents and carers out there, as oftentimes parents protect their children out of love, right? Out of good intentions. You know, I really want to stress that point because I'm not a parent, right? So I don't know what it's like to have children, to have um, almost like, although I haven't have, uh, heard it, it's like referred to like, when you have children, you feel like they're part of you, especially mothers out there. Um, so, I don't, obviously, I don't know what that's like. So, um, I, well, I did want to put this to John, but I have been a son. I am a son. I have been. No, I am a son. And, um, you know, oftentimes I feel like in the, well, oftentimes in the past, I have felt like that there have been lessons that I wanted to learn and also I needed to learn for my own growth and involvement that have been taken away from me. Again, out of good intentions and love, and um, and that that also like that parenting instinct. I think sometimes that can be valuable, and actually on the other end of that has saved me from from situations that um, that maybe I need I, I needed that. But also on the on the other end, on the other side, sometimes I've taken lessons away that I wanted and needed to learn for my growth and unfoldment. Right. And so um, I asked John about this. I put this to, to Dr. Demontini and this is what he had to say on parenting um, and relationships and the connection uh, between these and our value systems. Okay, so very fascinating. Here's what he had to say. Um, don't confuse caring with projecting your wounds onto your children. In other words, if they did something that they were wounded by and they had a pain over, they're going to try to protect their kid from having that. And they, don't, they didn't realize the blessing that came from what they went through. And they're trying to rob the people and protect the child from having the thing that helps them grow. So beware of projecting your wounds onto your children and calling it caring. Uh, the second thing is to identify respectfully what the children's highest value is and learn the art of communicating what you think will be of value to that child in terms of the child's values so they're receptive. If you see your child as a customer um, and you're a salesperson, you're not going to want to sell something without caring enough about the customer to establish a need and confirm a need before you offer a service. Don't project a service and a demand autocratically onto the child until you've established a need in their value system and communicating what your product, service, or idea, the thing you want your child to learn in terms of those needs. The second you do, the child will absorb it. They love learning, but they love learning things that are meaningful to them. And if you take the time to do that, you will have a different child. If not, you're going to end up having, you know, an autocratic, demanded, and a child that's going to play, you know, disobedient because it doesn't want to be told how it's to be. It, wants, it has its own expression. So honor their values too, and their values are going to change. And and I had a, a the show today was about you know the kids that are living for hours and hours on the video games. 
Well, my son's a video uh, personality, so I certainly don't have an issue with that. But some people do. And I tell them, uh, if you're going to do this, it's not the addiction of the video that they're doing. Find out what the values are that they're getting met by doing the video, because the people that are designed the video games have specialists to try to meet the needs of young people's minds. And you may not like it. You may not understand it. But unless you can go in there and meet those needs and fulfill those needs more effectively than what the video game is, the video game is going to win and they're going to want to do the video game and not do what you want to do. So find out what is really behind the drive to do the game. We actually did a little analysis on a young boy that was really into video games. And we found out the reason he was loving the video games is because the video game was set up that you got to win and you got a feeling of accomplishment every couple seconds. You know, within 10 seconds, you got another accomplishment. I did this. I accomplished this. I got this. I accomplished this. So they're training the brain on getting a dopamine for accomplishing. And so the children want to be able to feel that they're, they're you know, they're achieving. And that they want to feel the rewards of that achievement. Now, the thing is, if you don't offer them something that's comparable in, a, in the area that you would love for them to develop, uh, because, you know, you have possibly a longer life and you have more long-term vision and you know what they're going to need long-term, they're not going to listen to you. They're going to be defiant because they want to get their values met. So find out, don't just blame the game. Find out what the real motives and values that the children are getting out of the game and then create something that's comparable that can fulfill those same values and they'll do it. And I've proven that over and over again. It's, It's not that hard. It's something you can train. I've trained people lots of parents and I train teachers and I train, you know, kids that are people that are dealing with young people. So it's, it's not that hard. It's just a matter of taking the time. You know, if you ran into a, a woman that you might, or a guy or whatever the sexual preferences are today, uh, ran into somebody that you were attracted to, you'd want to get to know them and getting to know them, their identity revolves around what they value most. Like I have a friend who's, uh, who loves uh, cutting horses. She rides horses every day, and she's training to be one of the great cutting horse specialists. And she's meeting one of the best cutting horse trainers in the world is is her trainer. And so, if I'm talking to her, if if I want to keep her engaged, we got to go down the path of something to do with horses and cutting horses and achievement that or whatever. As long as I do, she's engaged. The second I go off and talk about something else and say, "Well, you need to learn this. You need to know this," she's she's tuned me out. So I have to care enough about her to respect her enough to know what her values are, what, what's really meaningful to her, and communicate in those values and help her get that if, she, if I want her to pay attention to me. Let's say there's two people. And let's say this is you and this is them. And let's say you feel superior to them. And you think that you're more knowledgeable or more successful or more wealthy or more you know, stable in your relationship or more socially connected or more physically fit or more spiritually aware. In any of the seven areas of life that you think you're superior to them and are looking down on them and you're too proud to admit what you see in them is inside you, you're going to project your values onto them. The way you know you've been projecting is you'll say, you got to, you have to, you must, you should, you ought to, you're supposed to, you need to. Now, that's very disrespectful because that's a superior, arrogant position talking down to another individual. And then, of course, they're going to get resistance because they're going to feel like you're telling me something and you're not caring about to find out what I want. So it's not a win-win. So that eventually humbles you and brings you back down to level the playing field. On the other hand, if you're inferior, and by the way, when you project values, you have a projection of values, they're subordinate, you're superordinate, and that's the, they, they become the sub-ego, you become the superego to them. Then what happens is if you're now the underdog and you now put them on a pedestal, what you'll do is you'll say, I should, I got to, I have to, I must, I need to. You'll have the internal language because you're internalizing and injecting the values of people you put above you. Because values automatically go from whoever has the most power to whoever has the least power in society. So if you're looking up to people, you inject their values. If you're looking down on people, you project your values. And anytime you try to get others to live in your values, you have futility. They won't do it. They can't. They have their own values, and that's what makes their decisions. Anytime you try to live in other people's values, 
you'll beat yourself up and self-depreciate and wonder why you're sabotaging and why you can't stay focused because you're trying to live in somebody else's values. The subordination to outer authorities is one of the most common things that stop people from being able to be confident in their life. But people do it. The second you level the playing field, there's respect. That means that I'm not superior or inferior, and I'm communicating what I value in terms of what you value because I respect your values. And I'm and I'm learning from you as much as I'm teaching you. It's a it's a sustainable, fair exchange. If you go down and altruistically sacrifice for others, it's non-sustainable. Giving something for nothing is not sustainable. You you eventually say, I'm not I'm not getting enough out of this. And over here, it's not sustainable because people don't want to be told what to do. And eventually you get humbled. So one humbles you, one lifts you to try to get you authentic, where you're respecting other people and have reflective awareness. And you have a sustainable fair exchange. All of the symptoms in our life, in our relationships, our business, our sales, in any area, our kids are all teaching us how to have respectful communication where there's sustainable fair exchange. Every symptom we ever face is pointing to that. Okay, guys. So next up, I asked Dr. Demartini how to navigate relationships, right? How to navigate relationships whereby you're doing your best to help the people in your life. And especially like the people you care for the most, you know, the people you spend the most time with, et cetera. You obviously want them to thrive as well because you're, you're loving and you're kind as well. You know, like the people in our lives, our friends, our family, the people closest to us, we, we all want the people around us, the people that we love and care for the most to thrive ultimately. And so when you're trying to help them to get to that place of, of thriving, um, um, but you have hit a brick wall because let's just say you've learned something that's been really, really transformational for you. You want to pay that forward. You believe in it. You believe that it's also going to help them. They don't take action. The relationship, how that can sometimes actually change the relationship dynamic as well. Um, this is a challenge again that I've also faced, which is why I wanted to, to, to put it to Dr. Demartini. Um, and he helped me to think of it in a different way. And I hope that he's going to also help you guys to think of it in a different way as well, because I think the perspective he shares is very insightful and very valuable. So here's what he had to say, guys. Well, I don't go by what people say. I go by what they live. Because let me give you an example. I have had many consultings with people and said, you know, my job is killing me. I got to get out of this. And the next time I see them 10 years later, they're in the job and they're complaining. And I explained to them, if they're interested, that nobody's going to continue to do something unless there's more advantage and disadvantage. So what happens is they sometimes are getting an advantage out of that job. It's financial security, even though they don't like the job but they don't have an alternative in their mind to get the same income as easily. So they bitch about their job because it's not what they want, but they don't see an alternative way of getting financial security. So they say, I hate my job, but what they're really working for is not the job. It's for financial security. And they don't see a, a greater way of getting financial security. That's why they're doing it. Same thing in a relationship. You know, this relationship's killing me and they're still in there. And I explained to them that you're not going to leave the relationship until you become aware of what the unconscious motive is that you're actually staying there in for, because you're getting more advantage and disadvantage or you would have left already. So what is the advantage you're getting out of there and be cognizant of it instead of going and bitching? Because many people have unrealistic expectations and fantasies that they impose on relationships, but they're getting an advantage out of that individual that far exceeds the frustration, but they bitch about it. So I don't go by what people bitch about. I go by what they live. So when somebody says, you know, my back's killing me, but they're not doing anything towards their health, that means that they have other things that are more priority in their life right now, but they have the fantasy that they want to feel better, but they keep doing the things that actually are breeding the problem. So I just go in there and I ask them a simple question. Uh, no one's going to continue to do something unless there's more advantage and disadvantages. What are the advantages you're getting out of this, having this pain? And having these uh, this behavior because you wouldn't be doing it if you didn't get a benefit out of it so what are you doing what's the benefit you get and bringing unconscious motives conscious 
Can I give a story around that? It might be useful. I was asked, I don't know, 10, 12, about 12 years ago to do a reality TV show. And they gave me 24 hours to change the life of 12 people, two hours per individual. Pretty intense. And one of the ladies that they brought to me to transform their life was a very obese woman. And um, I was to do what I could to try to get her to reduce weight. That was, that was the thing that they requested. And so she comes into the, where we're filming and uh, she brings in two big boxes of food. And she says, I brought everybody food in case they get hungry. And then went on to eat those two boxes. She ate more food in that day than I would eat in a week, probably. It was amazing. So when I finally got to her time, because she was watching me work with the other individuals before her, she said, you got to help me. I Look at me. I'm overweight. i got to stop. you got to help me. you got to help me. And I, I hear all these words. I said, I said, you wouldn't continue to do this unless you were getting an advantage out of doing this. I'm going to ask you now, since the time clock is going, what advantages are you getting out of eating more than you need and keeping weight on? There is no advantage. It's killing me. Look at me. I said, stop the story. That's the drama. Answer the question. What benefits are you getting out of it? You wouldn't be doing it if you didn't get a benefit. And finally, she looked at me, and after realizing I wasn't going to let her slack, she said, everybody in my family is big. And if I'm not big, I don't feel like I'm part of my family. I went, good. That's number one. Now go to the second reason. Give me another benefit you're getting out of keeping big and eating much. And after a few hemming and hawing, she says, I got a bigger sister, an older sister, two years older than me. And she's very big. And she used to push me around. And I made a commitment to myself when I was young. I was never going to let her push me around. Whatever size she is, I'm going to be bigger. I said, great. So that way you sister can't push you around. She goes, she doesn't push me around. I said, good. What's the third benefit? And then she said the big one. That was a huge one. It literally brought her into tears. She said, I went on a crash diet one time and lost 45 pounds. And I started to get a tiny bit of a shape because I was pretty big. But I started to get a bit of a shape. And a guy came on to me. And I'd never been with a guy. I'd never... You know, I fantasize about it. I hope to, to, but I never really got to be with a guy other than just friends. And the very first night we got together because he was showing affection for me, I thought I was in love. And I had my first, you know, lovemaking experience. And then the following day, I never saw him again. And six and a half weeks later, I found out I was pregnant. And I was Catholic, and I'm uh, from a Latin American descent. And I was programmed that if I had a baby out of wedlock or if I, you know, made love before marriage, I would go to hell. So she said my life became hell when I found out I was pregnant because I didn't want to keep the baby, but I didn't want to have an abortion because I was going to go to hell. And I eventually had the abortion. I felt ashamed and everything else. So I made sure that I never became attractive again because the last time I lost weight, I got attractive. And I had the most painful moment in my life with a guy. I said, great, that's three. What's the fourth one? And she says, well, I'm actually in TV and I have a, a prop in front of me. And from my boobs up, I have pretty skin and I have nice thick hair and everything else and large boobs. And I, you don't see the rest of my body. So from there on up, it kind of looks good. And as long as I keep weight on, I don't have any sagging. But if I lose weight, I start to get jowls and sagging. And so I don't like to do that. And I, I, I'm not an exercise person. I just eat and it keeps my skin plump. And everybody always compliments me on how stretched the skin is. <laughs> so we went down there and we found 75 unconscious motives of why she was keeping weight on. And at the end, she said, I really don't have a motive to get my weight loss, do I? I said, no. That's why I asked this question. She says, nobody's ever asked me those questions. I said, now, once we know what the motives are, we now want to find viable alternative ways of getting those same things accomplished without having to eat. So let's identify a variety of ways we can do things that allow us to be part of the family without having to eat. Can we go and meet them at a, at a movie? 
Can we go and get them during a time when it's not lunch or breakfast or dinner time? And and there was we found viable alternative ways of getting all those same benefits. And then we linked those to her own highest value and delinked eating to it. Because if you go and try to suppress and shame somebody for their behavior without giving them a viable alternative, they're just going to feel guilty and they're going to go right into it because the amygdala is going to take over. So we transformed her life. Now, I, I, I didn't just stop at two hours. During another break, I went ahead and worked with her. And I you know kept working with her and I had her do homework and a bunch of things. But when she actually became aware, she realized that it wasn't something happening to her. It was her doing something to her. And she didn't have command over it. She found alternative ways and that brought her weight down. It was really quite interesting. And she started exercising some as the weight was coming down to tone up the musculature so it wasn't fat, it was muscle to keep the tone. So it was really interesting because she wasn't that old really. And uh, so there's a motive and people don't want to admit their motives sometimes, but I had a, a a very a sexual issue with a lady one time that was having sex with somebody for a long period of time, for six years. And she said, well, it was a, a forced sex, but it, I said, well, it's going on for six years. You didn't scream or holler or yell or whatever. And then she finally admitted that I stayed having sex with this person because this person would have left and we would have been in poverty. And I didn't want my mother to go through poverty because I saw her literally suicidal and I would have been left by myself. And there was a, an unconscious motive in order to do this sexual experience. So I don't go by what people say. I go what they live. And every decision they make is based on what they believe will give them the greatest advantage or disadvantage to their hierarchy of values. So if I do that, I gain a whole lot more uh, power in transforming people's lives than to go by what their words are. Because many people tell you, I want to be financially independent, and then they go spend all their money and keep getting in themselves in debt. So what they say and what they're actually doing are two different things. I look at what people do. Their life demonstrates their values. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Like how mind-blowing was that, guys? How mind-blowing was that segment with Dr. Demartini? Um since talking to John, I've actually gone back to see how my own life, see how I'm living my life and if it demonstrates, really demonstrates the values and the values that I want to create my life around and live my life based on and the values I want to embody, right? And if there is that um, lack of kind of, for want of a better phrase, authenticity there, you know, the value, you know, like that gap between the values I want to live and what I'm actually living. And surprise, surprise, there is in some situations, some gaps, right? And so also feel like the act of, or, the, or one of the purposes of me now being on this personal growth journey and actually coming more into an awareness of conscious personal growth and spiritual practice, that this is one of the things that is going to help me to lead, to live that more value-driven life and actually embody the values that I want to embody more. So I feel like I'm on that journey. And I hope that this segment and all the, you know, this episode and the, all that we spoke about, about values, has been a lot of this episode as well, has helped you to, or will help you. I would encourage you to do so. Go away and reflect on what Dr. Martini was, was saying there. Um, because look, we're all a work in progress and we can all continue to grow by asking these types of questions and and engaging in this type of wisdom in, as I mentioned before, like more conscious personal growth, which is something I'm going to be sharing a little bit more about over the coming weeks and months. So definitely, definitely look out for that. But um, before I brought my conversation with Dr. Martini to a close, I asked him, I asked him the, 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 the role, I asked him the role resilience plays in pretty much life and in a lot of what we spoke about in today's episode. Okay, resilience. So I actually asked him this because he does have a new exciting book. So um, on this very topic, so I had to, I had to bring this, this topic in to also give him the opportunity and for us to learn more about resilience, because I think it's a very important skill that we can also cultivate and um, help us to live life. Here is what he had to say. Resilience and adaptability <clears throat> is a form of flexibility in a sense of the mind. 
if you're highly infatuated with somebody and you're conscious of their upsides and unconscious of their downsides, you're going to fear their loss. You can have a phobia of loss because you have a philia of pleasure associated with that. Every philia has its opposite, like a magnet has a positive and negative. The philia has a phobia. If you're philic with it and attracted to it, you're going to fear its loss. That's why if you're highly infatuated with somebody, you're jealous. You're afraid somebody's going to get them. You don't want to lose them. If you're resentful to somebody and you're phobic dealing with them, you're going to fantasize getting away from them. So you're going to have the philia escaping them, and you're going to have the phobia of dealing with them. So the fear of losing that which you seek and the fear of gaining that which you're trying to avoid are the two primary stresses that people face in their life. Now, is the more polarized you are, you've heard people say, well, um, this person's all upsides, no downsides. This person's mean, there's no nice, or this person's nice, there's no mean. Anytime you have black and white absolute perceptions, you're adding to the phobias in life. If something's absolutely positive and no negative, you're going to fear its loss. And absolutely negative without positive, you're going to fear its gain. Religious fundamentalists live in that box. Political fundamentalists live in that box. You know, if, I, if you're a Democrat and we don't get a Democrat, we're going to be, all hell's going to break loose. Or if you're a Republican, we don't get a Republican, all hell's going to break loose. Black and white areas have the least amount of resilience. The individual that sees full consciousness, they see the positives and negatives simultaneously, not just one side. See, when you're conscious of the upsides and unconscious of the downsides, you're blind. You're ignorant. If you're conscious of the downsides, unconscious of the upsides, you're blind. You're ignorant. If you see both sides, you see. You're seeing. When you see both sides of things, and it's not black or white, it's not positive or negative, it's not philic or phobic, you have resilience. A perfectly neutral mind is purely adaptable. It can take it or leave it without reacting. But the second you're infatuated, you fear its loss. The second you're resentful, you fear its gain. So anything you can do to calm down extreme polarities of perception increases resilience. So the book is going through mechanisms of what create non-resilience, non-adaptability, rigidity, and how to solve it. And we also address anxieties and phobias and fantasies and uh, addictions, because if people have a high addicted state and have a high dopamine drive to have it, they also have a subdiction for its opposite. And the more polarized they are, the more difficult it is to be resilient and change. I did a, a program in Iran, believe it or not, I had to get uh, Obama to get me in there. I did a program for the government of Iran, 22 ministers of state in Iran, on resiliency and adaptability for change management when they were releasing the sanctions, when Obama released the sanctions before Trump got back in. And uh, they were trying to go, we're now we're about to boom in our economy, and so they needed to adapt. What are we going to do if all of a sudden our economy booms? And so we were showing them that the rigidity of their beliefs and their rules I would stopping them. As long as you're trapped in these boxes and you don't have the ability to see both sides of things, there's no resilience. So a perfectly balanced mind has pure resilience. An imbalanced mind, it's highly polarized, all black, no white, all white, no black, has the least resilience. There's no resilience. So one is an amygdala-driven thing to avoid and seek, and one is an executive center thing where you have objectivity, which means neutrality. An objective individual sees both sides, embraces both sides, and sets a goal that has both sides and is prepared for both sides. That's a resilient individual. So that's what the book is about. How to master resilience. Wow. Again, just wow. Like, what a fascinating episode, guys. Um, I learned so much during my time with John. I still feel a bit gutted that I had to, to put, I had to put this episode together like this. If you're watching over on, on, on video on YouTube, then you would also see kind of my setup now, you know, it's just not the same. If you're listening, if you're listening on podcasts, it might be a bit, a bit different, but on video, you know, where, you know, it's, it's just not the same rather than being in that free flowing conversation. And, um, I'm just kind of summarizing some of the questions that I did ask him, but this is, you know, this is sometimes what we have to do, right? We have to. Uh, be flexible and adapt to the situation. And unfortunately, my audio files got corrupted, as I mentioned beforehand. Um, 
but yeah, I want to encourage everyone to take a look back through the episode, go back through the episode, and then take a look back on like your own life, you know, and see where you are living your values, where you, where you're not, the values, the values you want to embody, as I mentioned beforehand. Um, we finished by John sharing where you can actually get his new book as well. Um, as you know, as we just spoke about that on the topic on resilience, all the links are also in the description below. So I'm going to go back over to this segment with John, where he shares where you can get his new book. Yeah, Amazon will be able to do it. Your seven secret treasures and the resilient mind. One came out in October. One's now just now being announced. It's I've seen it advertised some already on the internet. So it's, it's come out. Okay, guys, finally, I just want to thank you so much for listening and tuning in, in to this episode today of Raising Consciousness. As I mentioned in the last clip segment, whatever you want to call it, it's not the same, but I hope you've still got a tremendous amount of value from me sharing these insights or some of my insights I got to put this episode together, but also, at, and probably more so from the, the segments from John. So um, again, I want to also thank Dr. Martini for his time and effort as well. And um, yeah, tech issues, right, prep files. It is what it is, but I believe that there is so much value for you to extract from this episode and that we can all learn from Dr. Martini and that we can all learn from Dr. Martini. So thank you for being here. Have a great day. And for more after today's show, be sure to head on over to raisingconsciousness.show to get all of the show notes, transcriptions, videos for each episode, and a hell of a lot more. And if you got value from this episode, found it insightful, or learned a thing or two, please leave a review where you can let everyone know that this show is worth checking out. I appreciate you so much. You'll be hearing from me in the next episode.